Words are powerful. They can heal or hurt, innovate or destroy, cure us, bring us down, and then bring us right back up again. The words we choose evoke feelings and responses in ourselves and those who hear us on a daily basis. They can even, if we are wise, be life-saving. Welcome to There's a Word for That, a podcast that explores a different word or expression each week in our relationship to it. I'm your host, Suzanne Dressler, and thank you for joining me on this journey. Hello, lovelies. Welcome to episode 23 of There's a Word for That. The word for this episode is resilience, and this is a two-part episode featuring my friend and colleague, Claire Manship. Claire had gone through, well, she's, I shouldn't say gone through, she's been through some serious, serious, very, very scary medical situations in the past year and a half. I asked her if she'd be interested in coming on the podcast to talk about the word fear. And she said, I'd rather talk about the word resilience because I have been through so much and some things that you can't even make up. And I really think resilience speaks to me more than fear. So that's fine with me. And we have so many details in this conversation about her experience and about her mentality and how she was determined to live because she really did almost die and how she feels resilience has shaped her during this, before this and after, and even during the pandemic. So I'm thrilled to have her on the show. And I hope you enjoy and listen carefully because she says some really powerful things in both this episode and the episode that will follow up that will be released, not the follow up part two that will be released next week. So thank you so much for tuning in. So today on the show, we have Claire Manship. Thank you so much for coming. I'm so grateful. Thank you for asking me. What a treat. Of course, this is going to be fun. We're discussing the word resilience. So yeah, so our audience knows as we were talking about, I had asked Claire if she would be willing to come on the podcast and talk about the word fear because she has gone through some pretty, what I believe are tenuous, very scary medical experiences over the past yeah. Like very, very scary, life threatening. And when you <laughs> mild way to put it, that's the term, they were dodgy. <laughs> they were dodgy. You almost died. Right. Okay. Let's just call it state of state. You were dying. So, <laughs> so I've always wondered how people deal with that when they're in a hospital situation and they know their situation is very bad, how they comfort themselves. And you were able to comfort yourself during a pandemic and pre-pandemic. We don't have to talk about the pandemic. But what is your, why don't you just, because I want you to kind of guide this. What is your your relationship with the word resilience and why you chose that one instead of fear? Well, if I was still in my tenuous medical situation, as it were, then fear might be the most applicable word. It might be appropriate because that shit is scary. When a doctor tells you, like, we must operate now or you are a goner, like, sure, that's scary. There's fear. So what was the start of this medical journey for you? Because when I found out about it, you had, I think, gone in for it was a precancerous screening that you were just doing right to keep yourself safe. Was that right? You found a gene? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I found out that I was BRCA2 positive in 2014. 
the BRCA gene just stands for the BR is breast and the CA is cancer. And there are two different genetic mutations, number one and number two, I just happen to have number two, that make you genetically predisposed to feminine related cancers based on family history, obviously through geneticism. So I got that DNA testing done in 2014 because I had a family history of ovarian cancer in my maternal aunt. And basically, when you find out that you have this genetic mutation, you start doing breast exams, breast ultrasounds, maybe the occasional mammogram or transvaginal ultrasound or whatever on a more frequent basis than you typically would at a young age. Normally, they don't have you start doing things like that until your 30s and mammograms after 40 or 45. But for people who have this genetic mutation, it's just better to be safe than sorry. So I was in that routine for a couple of years. And then in 2016, the first two benign growths showed up. I had one in the left breast and one in the right breast. I had them biopsied. They were benign. And then a couple of years later, two more showed up, one in the left, one in the right. So then I had four benign tumors. It was by that time that I was being presented with options for preventative measures, what they call prophylactic medicine. Yes. And you were, and, you were very young. I mean, you are very yes. Good, but. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, yeah, at the time I was 27. And so it was the week of my 28th birthday that I, well, just before I turned 28, I found out that I had a fifth growth in the, I want to say left breast. I can't remember. It's hard to remember because they're different now. But I, I found out that I had a fifth tumor. It came back irregular. It needed an MRI biopsy. It was a much more complicated situation. But at that point, I had already determined that I was getting a double mastectomy. So it didn't even matter if it was malignant or benign because it was coming out no matter what. So it turned out it was also benign. And so we went ahead with the surgery without plans for radiation or chemo or anything after the fact. I didn't have active cancer. So the surgeon double mastectomy, just to clarify. Double mastectomy with an immediate deep flap reconstruction. So basically, they remove the contents of the breast and keep the outer shell and the like outer musculature. And then the reconstruction I chose is similar to a tummy tuck, but it is the same cut as a cesarean section. So it goes hip to hip. They remove subcutaneous fat off the top of the abdomen, sew you up across the abs, and then use that flap and do a microsurgery to connect all of the, what's the word? Tissue? Vessels and tissue. There we go. (laughs) And veins. That was the word I was looking for. Veins. In the breast shape. And then using plastic surgery, they basically sew you back up. And your own fat with your own body fat. Exactly. So it's still living, breathing. It's just not breast anymore. It's just fat. So then shortly thereafter, you know, I stayed in the hospital like five nights and the surgery was a success and I went home. And then I started noticing that one of my drain sites, when you have major surgery, they have drains coming out of surgical sections just to make sure that no, there's no fluid buildup or blood or whatever one of my drain sites was really hurting. It started to sting and itch and was getting kind of ugly looking. And so I went back to get it looked at and they thought it was just probably the sutures were scratching me, whatever. So they removed the drain and I felt amazing. Totally fine. I went home, 
I took a nap, I woke up and I was in sepsis. And basically, I had contracted MRSA through the open drain site. MRSA is methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Nice. Staph infection. Yes. So people should know that everyone has staph, right? Staph is living on our skin at all times. Everyone has different strains of staph. MRSA is extremely contagious and it is looking for an opening. Oftentimes it comes up when people get a scrape, a cut, a bug bite. That's why you and so, disinfect everything, right? Exactly, exactly. So I contracted MRSA. They did not know it was MRSA yet because they had to deal with me going into sepsis first. And when they identified that the culture came back with MRSA, they sent me home with antibiotics after about a week in the hospital, getting that under control. Then I was better for a couple of weeks. By this time, it's the summer of 2019. You're home. I'm home. I went back to my life. Got better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got completely better. Was still, you know, scarred and swollen and whatever, but I was cleared to go out in the world. I was seeing my friends. I was going to museums. I was eating Chipotle, like totally normal. (laughs) And (laughs) yay. Basically how antibiotics work, which I didn't know it until then, is that they keep a bit of antibiotic therapy in your system for a while after you finish that round of antibiotics. It's supposed to kind of like slow burn for a couple more weeks after you finish that your body's holding on to reserves of antibiotic. I did know this because whenever I've had to take it, the doctors always say, make sure you finish the entire round. even Yes. Because it still works even when you are fine. And that's why you don't drink on antibiotics either, because alcohol will kill that shit. Uh, now, see, this is I'm glad I have you on. This is like a medical <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> okay, go on. So, so it's summer 2019. Yeah. So I'm uh, my surgery was June 11th. And by mid-July, I had gone through sepsis, taken the antibiotics, back to my life. Things were looking pretty good. And then... I started not feeling well again. My abdomen went rigid. I started having a fever. My heart rate was really high. And it kind of felt like I was going into sepsis again. So I went back to the hospital and they put me in the CAT scan and it showed that where the incision was across my abdomen from the reconstruction, the MRSA had come in through that drain site and grew in liquidity, like as a liquid inside my abdomen. It was basically like expanding in the cavity that was made available from the surgery. How? If you took, see, like medically, did they explain to you how that happened when you were on antibiotics and you felt fine? So MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, is staph that learns what the antibiotics look like and will resist them. So basically, there's no cure for staph because eventually you will run out of effective medicine for it because the disease recognizes its attacker. Okay. Okay. So basically the antibiotics worked for a little bit and then it said, I know you and started growing again. It's smarter than the antibiotic equation. Right. Okay. Yeah. So then they switched up my antibiotics and had to keep me at the hospital because... When the CAT scan came back and showed that I had this huge possible 
they didn't know if it was free liquid or if it was an abscess or whatever. They were like, there's something hinky going on. We have to keep you here. They told me we're going to need to reopen your incisions, clean out your body. Basically, they call it they call it a washout or a scrub out. (laughs) And then they sew you back up again and give you a new antibiotic that will hopefully stave off the MRSA long enough that your body can heal itself. Unfortunately, the surgery was a success. I was in the hospital in quarantine because MRSA is extremely contagious and I had open wounds that were healing. And the antibiotics they gave me, the second kind of antibiotic that they had attempted, shut down my kidneys. Basically, MRSA, the way that it knows how to attack is to convince the body to attack itself. So... Suzanne's eyes are so big right now. It's just like, you know, it's so funny because our minds are so powerful and our brains are so smart, but so are our bodies. Like, yes, their own, like, fucking MRSA. Like, the way our, I mean, crazy. I knew you had gone through that, <laughs> but this is like, and the were the doctors scared? Like, it sounds like what happened to you, and I could be wrong. It sounds like what happened to you was not supposed to happen, that you were kind no, of. No, no. Yeah. Was, yeah. My surgeon is like a miracle worker. He's the most incredible man. I'm obsessed with him. And he told me like one in 100 of his patients will have some kind of complication. But if I'm the one of 100, I'm like the one in 10,000 that have something this horrible happen. It was just the luck of the draw, truly. So basically, they get me on the right antibiotics. But my creatinine, which is the level by which you measure kidney function, was unusually high, like higher than a person who has like chronic kidney disease or whatever. They were like, so you can't go home. We got to keep an eye on your vitals because your kidneys are like trying to regulate and we're trying to battle MRSA. Were you alone? Because the word is resilient. I mean, what, do you mind my just asking you while this was going on, how did you stay? How did you convince your body? Because this is a very much a, like, how did you convince your body to be resilient and to stay strong enough and resist this? Did you do any kind of like, it's going to sound so cheesy, but did you do any kind of self-talk because you were alone? Were your parents mm-hmm. able to visit? Did you have anybody that could come be with you? Well, so my mother had come up for the initial surgery and she stuck around for my second hospitalization. And then when it looked like I was all better, she went home. And so it was just like bad timing that then I came down with you know, MRSA again. And also it started attacking my organ system. So I didn't have family there. I did have some friends who were very brave and scrubbed in to come see me, but they had to like sit across the room. They weren't allowed to touch me. They can be in the space. The thing about MRSA is it's not airborne. So as long as they don't touch me, then we can visit. But it's best if they sit across the room just in case something falls on the floor or I sneeze or something. (laughs) So that nice that I had friends coming every day or so to sit with me just to visit. The Bachelorette was very good that season. It was Hannah Brown's season. So the nurses would come and watch Bachelorette Mondays with me. It was a really big deal. That's amazing. That was amazing. I I was staying in Seven Uris at Lenox Hill and the staff there, the PAs, the nurses and the doctors of Lenox Hill are like, I have I have nothing but love for that entire hospital. Lenox Hill is like a second home to me. That's actually really that's helpful to know because not all hospital experiences are positive. And especially when you're alone and you need people, 
that's good to know. And I'm glad that people listening, you know, if they ever yes. decide which hospital to do a procedure at or where to go in an emergency, that Lenox Hills, that the experience was comforting for you. Yeah. If you can get in with Northwell, get in with Northwell, because I believe that the Hill and Meath and all of their hospitals are just, I mean, they, I have had a lot of doctor's appointments. And let me tell you, the best ones are always at Northwell. <laughs> I mean, they saved your life. So they did that summer. When did your kidneys start getting better? It took like a week before my kidney function returned. And then I stayed another like two or three days for observation. So it was like nine days in quarantine. Oh, and I was going to say the other thing about Northwell that is so fantastic. And another way I remained resilient mm-hmm. was they made it clear to me that I had more options than just sitting there and waiting to get better. They offered me holistic nurses and because no one could touch me but someone could come and perform reiki and that shit was wild that was crazy they told me that oh my god it worked a hundred percent and they also like i was really depressed like i was in a lot of pain and i was alone and you asked if my doctors were like worried about me. I mean, at one point, my surgeon was like, prepare yourself, like you might not make it. And he was like, it's really scary. Like I was shaking uncontrollably, I could only stop moving and like let go of my muscles on oxy. And for someone who is sober, which I am now three years sober, it is very hard to accept help in the way of narcotics and opiates. I've been told that, yeah. It's just, it's very painful to go through that and then accept that that is the only way that you will survive this. It just seems kind of counterintuitive to the sober mind. It's also like fucked up, really? Like after all that, it was me to have, but it worked. It worked. But yeah, I was super depressed. And I remember one of my nurses saying, well, you know, we have a therapy dog program here. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, do you want someone to bring you a puppy? And I was like, do I want someone to bring me a puppy? So they brought the dog to my room. But because I had MRSA, I had to like visit with it across the room. But just to have an animal in the space was really comforting. So like there was resiliency in trying different things, being open to accepting help. That's interesting. Being with my thoughts. You got to get really comfortable with yourself when... You are in quarantine, a real quarantine, not this fake COVID quarantine that people don't actually do, like a real quarantine. Did did your parents know that you might die? Yes. Yes. How was that for them? I did my best to give them updates, but for the most part, I let my surgeon couch the news where he would tell them all of the things that were going right. (laughs) Because what good does it do to worry my parents who are retired in Florida that I'm having a bad day of constant vomiting as opposed to Claire is showing more kidney function and was able to take a walk today? There's resiliency also in in how you frame things, right? Glass half full, glass half empty. Do you think that, because I'm fascinated by this, is something I'm working with, you know, that the words, one of the reasons I started this podcast was that the words we tell ourselves matter or the words yeah. we use matter. So the word resilient can mean a lot of like kids are resilient. They bounce back. Right. (laughs) I don't, I don't, people throw that word around, but I think it's the kind of word that has a different meaning per person, per experience. Is it safe to say, I feel like I'm a lawyer asking a witness. Is it safe to (laughs) say that your sense of resiliency helped heal you or saved your life? 
or is it just that it's a skill you've developed in order to function in very scary times or both? It's a great question. I mean, I'm listening to this and I'm feeling scared for, I mean, I would see your posts. I, uh, I mean, I would feel scared for you. And I'm thinking if I was alone, I know myself, my Jewish mother who lives an hour away would be like, fuck that shit. I'm coming in to see you, even if I told you. And I can imagine, I don't know if I would have had the courage or the resiliency to not break down or to keep things from them to protect them. I'm not so good at that. (laughs) But it's impressive that you were because I wish I had that skill. But we all say these things, but then when we're in those situations, I think we all find strength we didn't know we have. Yes. Was that the it's case? like the mother that can lift the car? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. And that it's almost like your body knows how your body will do what it needs to do to protect itself and to function. Yeah. So, what does resiliency literally mean for you during this time? How do you think it helped heal your body if it did? I mean, the most distinctive memory I have, I remember my surgeon told me like, we're going to need to cut you open again. If we don't, you will die. And I remember the first thought that crossed my mind was, this is not how I go. Like I was like, I was like, LOL, I'm not, no, it's not happening. Like I respect the medical community and that they know a lot more than me, but I just knew in my gut, like I didn't get sober at 26 to die at 28. (laughs) Like I really... I fucking didn't. You know what I mean? And like, I don't know if it was a higher power, if it was my intuition, but something placed that resilience deep inside of me of saying like, it's not how it goes down. This is not how this one plays out. And the body listens. The body, it's like the the brain cells affect, because I've been doing, you know, I've done a lot of studying on this, that the brain cells affect our immune system, right? What we tell our brain. So I wouldn't be surprised if your thought pattern during that time forced your body to work a certain way. Like it yeah. was- it's almost like an internal manifestation, like a medical manifestation. I have heard that there are people who, you know, like the crazy person who has the Guinness Book of World Records for like holding their breath because they convince themselves that they will not drown. Or like the person who can go out into the Arctic cold in their, you know, skivvies because they do not feel cold. You can tell yourself and apparently psychosomatically it works for people. I wasn't doing that intentionally, but I think it's correlative. It sounds like it was your instincts. At the time, I thought that nothing would be more painful than detoxing. (laughs) But kidney pain is so weird because it hurts everywhere and nowhere. It makes you hungry, but you can't eat. It hurts to pee, but you don't need to. Then suddenly you do. You need to throw up, but you don't have anything to throw up. It's like very, these like multi-universe dichotomies all because the kidneys can't function. And it is such a unique pain that you cannot touch that I, at the time, I think I went into that surgery being like, fuck yeah, I can do anything. And by the end of the quarantine, I was like, fuck yeah, I can do anything. (laughs) It was still there, but it was like, you know, it was revised. I see it. Nothing is more painful than kidney pain. That's like (laughs) resiliency now. (laughs) Yeah, seriously, your kidneys are resilient. Where was the MRSA by this point? MRSA, yeah. Or as the British would say, MRSA. I like when they... Maza at this point. Was it still in your body? Yeah, it was in a Tesla. It was, 
the MRSA. So when you have MRSA, there's like three different versions of it. One is it comes once and leaves once and it responds to the antibiotics and or it recognizes them. And, uh, you know, it's a small enough case that it's manageable. Version two is is what they thought mine was, which is it needs to be surgically removed, cared for after the fact and won't come back. The third kind is colonization. When you're colonized with MRSA, it means that it lives in and on you at all times. And basically, you just have to be careful that you don't have a MRSA outbreak at the same time as you skin your knee or something. And when you do, you just need to clean wounds and be extra careful and keep things covered up, try not to touch stuff or sanitize. So they thought mine was the second. And then in the pandemic shutdown, I got what I thought was a bug bite on my stomach. So typically mine was inside. So I never saw my MRSA. But on the outside, when MRSA starts to emerge, it comes as like, what might look like little acne or a bug bite. Sometimes people get it as like bruises that turn into boils. Mine just happened to be like, they look like acne. So I thought that it was like a zit or a bug bite. So I popped it and it was MRSA. When I went back to the infectious disease specialist, she was like, oh, you're, we didn't expect this, but you're colonized. And that time they put me on the antibiotics that had worked the last time. The MRSA recognized it. I had to change again. Eventually you run out of antibiotics. So one day my MRSA will come and I will have to get IV antibiotics at the hospital because the stuff at the pharmacy, just I will have used all of them. And the MRSA knows them all now. Even if it's years later, the MRSA will still recognize it? Yeah, because the antibiotics to the MRSA's brain, as it were, is the same as when you get like the chicken pox. Your body remembers the chicken pox forever. You're right. I think of them, if it were like little people, like their memory is long in the same way, even if it manifests differently, disease versus antibiotic efficacy. Thank you so much for listening today. If there is a word or phrase you would love to have covered on the show, please don't hesitate to reach out. And remember, whatever you are thinking, feeling, or experiencing, there's always a word for that. See you next time.